Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. On today's episode, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Manan Sharma. Manan Sharma is a research microbiologist in the Environmental Microbial and Food Safety Laboratory with the USDA, Agricultural Research Service, Environmental Microbial and Food Safety Laboratory. His research focuses on pre-harvest produce safety issues, including the survival of enteric bacterial pathogens in soils, biological soil amendments such as manure and compost, irrigation water, and on fruit and vegetable commodities. He has collaborated with several federal agencies and several universities on large multi-institution research projects focused on the FISMA produce safety rule, soil amendments, and irrigation water quality. Manon received his BS in microbiology and cell science from the University of Florida and his MS and PhD degrees in food science and technology from the University of Georgia. So welcome, Dr. Sharma. Thank you, Dr. Taormina. I really appreciate the opportunity to join your podcast. Well, it's so great to have you on. I'm excited to hear about what you've been working on in terms of research and, and other things in your professional life, uh, anything else you'd want to share, too. So thanks again. Sure. Um, I appreciate the opportunity again. <clears throat> Most of our research right now focused on pre-harvest uh, produce safety has really been influenced by the passage of the Food Safety Modernization Act, which... Um, I think was basically um, a major event in um, fruit and vegetable research, at least in with regard to food safety, mm-hmm. um, because of the um, standards that have been proposed but not finalized by FDA. There's a lot of interest around what some of the appropriate standards are for agricultural inputs, like <clears throat> soil amendments, like um, irrigation water mm-hmm. use. Because, as you well know, <coughs> excuse me, these crops are processed. I'm sorry, these crops are grown, but they don't really receive a kill step before they're consumed. And so, the risk for some of these process—I'm sorry, I keep saying process—the risk for some of these products um, is it can be high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a great um, and a great gap, I guess you would say. And pardon the pun, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's, it's a great area to, to work upstream into protecting the food supply at the not, the, not just the point of source of production, but in the actual substrate in which produce is grown. Yeah, and I think the more that we've gotten involved in this, we've um, wor- been working pretty closely with FDA since almost 2011, just right after the, um, the FISMA law was passed. What you realize about pre-harvest produce safety is that um, all agriculture is essentially local or regional. So all all produce safety is essentially the same thing. It's local, it's regional. The way you grow spinach in California and Arizona is much different than the way you grow spinach in Michigan or Maryland. Mm -hmm. You know, you have different seasons, different soils, Mm -hmm. different cultivars because you have different disease pressures. So all of these things factor into how we establish food safety guidance and in some cases rules around um, growing these products. I mean, uh, our goal is 
to minimize the contamination mm -hmm. with these products, the contamination with enteric pathogens, um, in order to prevent humans from getting sick by eating these things. We know there's a lot of advantages to having a diet that's um, full of fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and we want consumers to be able to consume these with a high degree of confidence. Mm -hmm. But I think as we're learning, um, I think it, it requires a massive amount of field data mm -hmm. for us to establish statistical models, for us to make conclusions. Um, and we're really learning that there are a lot of variations in the season-to-season -season results that we see working with both water and soil amendments. So in light of these variations in, in geography and in, in commodity type or produce type, how have you accounted for that in your research studies and experimental designs for these collaborative projects? So that's, <clears throat> that's a great question because um, you having uh, a research background, you understand that research is not cheap. <laughs> um, and so we've been really lucky to partner with the FDA and also several other academic institutions like the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, the Univers University of Delaware, the University of Maryland, um, the University of Vermont, on several of these studies. And the advantage um, to collaborating with these institutions is we're able to do multi-year, multi-season studies, mm -hmm. for example. Um, we just published a pretty large study in applied environmental microbiology looking at the influence of what we'd call spatial temporal effects and agricultural effects on the survival of E. coli in manure-amended soils. Mm -hmm. Um, and to conduct that study, we actually needed 12 seasonal trials at three different locations in the Mid-Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, and so we basically spent, you know, over a million dollars trying to collect that, to collect the data for that project. But what it showed us when we finally looked at the results is, yes, we looked at different types of soils, we looked at different types of manure amendments, we looked in different seasons. And what we found is that all of those things are significant. Like when um, we have some really good statisticians at USDA, it's one of the best things about working there. Mm. Um, but when you look at what is significant, the manure type that you use, for example, we found that poultry litter supported E. coli survival mm. for much longer durations than, say, horse manure or dairy manure mm. or dairy manure liquids. Um, but we also found that how you um, manage that manure and those manure amended soils, like if you're organically managing them or conventionally managing them, that matters. If you are leaving um, the manure or untreated soil amendment on the surface versus tilling it into the soil, that matters. Mm -hmm. So it's the type, the management, the depth, but really what overshadows all of those effects, which are still significant, is what we would call the spatial temporal factors, mm -hmm. the site so the location that your farm is on, the year, the season, all of these things seem to matter, maybe have more influence than what we'd call those agricultural factors like manure type, soil type, um, depth, uh, management. Mm. That's fascinating, and I'm maybe jumping too far ahead here, but what are some ways, or is this too soon, to translate the outcomes of this research into the tangible actions that farmers and growers can take to reduce their reduce the risk of pathogens in their product. So I mean that's a <clears throat> that's a great question. Um, that is probably the money question to be asking right now. Um, from our data, which is probably one of the more extensive data sets that can be used for statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. um, 
I would say that one of the things we've been looking into is um, non-microbiological indicators that can help people understand hmm. how what the what the likelihood of duration is of E. coli survival. So basically, as you know, microbiological testing always has a lag time in it. Mm-hmm. You take a sample, you have to go to the lab, culture it, confirm it. This is always not a 24-hour process. This is a 72, 96, 120-hour process at best. Mm-hmm. Um, what we'd like to do is maybe have some sort of indicator when you're in the field and saying, okay, our field conditions are this, mm-hmm. so if we're going to apply manure as a fertilizer, um, we want to be able to look at something. And one of those things that has potential um, resulting from our study is soil moisture. We found that drier soil supported longer durations of survival uh, of E. coli. Um, and that may be a little bit counterintuitive if we come from a food microbiology background where we think moisture, um, usually higher moisture levels support higher levels of um, enteric pathogens, maybe other pathogens as well. But in soils um, and in manure, it seems like the drier, the longer survival times we get. Mm -hmm. So if we could establish potentially a range of soil moisture conditions and you say, okay, your soil moisture is this, um, then maybe you make your soils a little bit wetter if you can Mm -hmm. before you apply the manure. Now I'm saying this, I'm not sure what agronomic effect that would have. Mm -hmm. Would that affect the soil quality? And then when you go to seed that soil, would it be as productive? Mm -hmm. Would it potentially introduce more plant diseases to the crop? Mm -hmm. These are all factors that have to be considered. But to just give you a line in the way we're thinking, we're doing all of these types of research studies in collaboration with FDA because Mm -hmm. these are the data that they are going to use to finalize um, the interval between application of manure and harvest of those crops. And right now, the FDA's position is they currently have no objection to the rules that are used in the National Organic Program, which is a 90- or 120-day interval. Mm -hmm. However, they say that they are collecting more data to eventually analyze and then hopefully establish a final rule. And I don't say final rule because I know the FDA has a different definition of final rule than, Mm -hmm. um, than most people, but... I think that's where we are. It's still, I think, going to be, uh, we need, you really can't undervalue the importance of regional data in this process. Mm-hmm. So with all these different variables and um, different factors involved in the research, is that what's led you to kind of get involved in modeling? I think you've been involved in some symposia about modeling recently. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting story. You know, um, like you, I'm trained more as a traditional food microbiologist, so um, even working uh, in this sort of interface between environmental and food microbiology has been uh, an educational experience has been fascinating and interesting and, um, and learned a lot from a lot of experienced collaborators and colleagues. Um, but when you realize that you're collecting all these data, there's really just, um, it's actually, once you understand a little bit more, it's it's an immense gift to try and model some of this. I obviously don't have any of the skills required to model this, but we have some really good statisticians like Brian Vineyard um, at the USDA, who is just extraordinary. My colleague Pat Milner um, has been really influential as well. So I'm learning along the way, which you know, which is kind of I think a lot of food microbiology sometimes. Um, 
but I do think the I, I do think the modeling does hold um, a lot of uh, solutions. But as you know, um, or I won't say I'll say potential solutions um, uh, because I don't know how we'll take data sets and try and organize them and make sense of them without doing yeah. something like that, putting them in some construct. Um, but then again, as you all know, in, yeah. there's no model that can compensate for bad data. Right. So, you know, and you really have to be careful about and be attentive to the data that you're putting into the model. So, you know, we've been doing this with soil amendments, and uh, we do it in the field, we do it in the growth chambers. We also have a really large irrigation water project that we work on called Conserve, hmm. um, where we've sampled the Mid-Atlantic region um, for two years, and we have collaborators at the University of Arizona and the University of Maryland and the University of Delaware. Um, if I'll put it, I'll be a shameless and put in a plug for it. It's www.conservewaterforfood.org. Um, you can check it out. It's a really quite interesting project. But the food microbiology part of that is really fascinating because we've done it. We just completed um, the data analysis or the partial data analysis for a two-year survey of different types of water sources for foodborne pathogens and not just bacterial pathogens, but viral and parasitic pathogens as well. And along with all of those things, we're looking at chemical contaminants as well as, you know, as uh, antibiotic residues, other pharmaceuticals and household um, chemicals that could be considered, you know, pollutants or have a public health risk as well. So it's been a really interdisciplinary project, but when you work with large data sets like we've been you really do need to have some kind of construct, and that construct is basically a statistical model. So mm -hmm. I've been learning more about it to answer your question. I'm certainly by no means an expert. I'm not sitting there writing code or mm -hmm. fitting, uh, fitting data to specific models and understanding how they fit, but I'm just learning that they sh are another tool in the tool toolbox that we really need right now. Absolutely, I think that's, that's well said, and, and I think, um, uh, it helps to make more of an impact, I would imagine, if the yeah. data can be explained with modeling to right. sort of fill in the gaps, so right. to speak. Uh, the points where you don't have exactly the data point, right. but you can predict based on the other data that you did collect. Right, and I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, where you have enough data to make make some assessment or conclusion and say, okay, we know that these are the influence that are affecting, you know, enteric pathogen persistence in the environment. Um, and we can kind of classify them and say, well, these are the things that really influence, these are the things that moderately influence, these are the things that um, influence to a lesser degree. Mm -hmm. I think now that's also providing us a prioritization list on where to focus our mitigation strategies. Um, you know, so what can we do to the soil? Well, we know drier soil may provide for longer survival times. Um, in water, we know that maybe certain water types, like um, surface tidal rivers, for example, or surface non-tidal rivers in our work, have higher, uh, you know, at least in our preliminary analysis, have higher, uh, have higher prevalence rates of salmonella and listeria monocytogenes. Mm -hmm. um, so what does that mean? That means when you use that water as a potential irrigation source, you really need to maybe think about some sort of mitigation treatment. Are you gonna filter that water? Are you going to add a disinfectant mm -hmm. um, to mitigate that risk? And the flip side of that is when we look at, say, like a water body like a pond, which we had initially assumed would be dirty and 
uh, have a really low microbio microbiological quality to it. But when we look at the pond water, it's relatively free of pathogens. Nothing's free of a pathogen in mm -hmm. these types of environments, but the prevalence is relatively low. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we're assuming that the mitigation that you would need is quite minimal. Um, so you're surprised when you see findings like this, but I think that's what's really good about having to collect longitudinal data in this mm -hmm. manner. Sounds like a really complex ecosystem, obviously. And so are you using metagenomics, uh, whole genome sequencing, or what sort of molecular tools are you using? And also, two-part question, what about um, heavy metals, chemicals, and other things? What sort of assays and techniques are part of your... Yeah, so for the first part of that, um, again, I'm just a guy like in the middle, so I don't know how to do some of these more complex things. But yes, we are looking at a metagenomic approach and also sequencing. Um, we have a lot of salmonella, listeria, and a few shigatoxigenic E. coli isolates that we've collected. Um, we are in talks with uh, the Genome Tracker Program, which is a, pro a, um, a program that FDA has funded. and. Uh, public health, uh, state public health agencies used to sequence mm -hmm. bacterial pathogens. So we're working with them to sequence some of these isolates. Uh, for our soil amendment works, we've actually worked with different parts of the FDA to look at the community analysis, the microbial community in mm -hmm. soils, uh, you know, and looking at the effect of these either treated or untreated soil amendments um, and what they're introducing or um, not introducing to uh, to sort of, I guess, the microbiome of the soil, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and interesting, what we see so far is that when we do add uh, an organic fertilizer, like a heat-treated poultry pellet, which is very common fertilizer used in organic agriculture, mm -hmm. but initially what we see is uh, upon addition of that, we see a decrease in the microbial communities in the soils. And so I think what we're learning is that there, if there's any shift, in that, and if we see these sort of events happen, like um, related to the climate or to that, mm -hmm. then I think that's always a potential opportunity for a pathogen to take hold and survive mm -hmm. in those niches. So though, anytime we see a shift like that, we're always interested in investigating that a little bit further. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. the second part of your question was, are we looking at chemical assays and things like that? Again, I'm the middleman. We don't do that kind of stuff, but we have really good collaborators mm -hmm. at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. And um, as I was talking about the Conserve Project, we actually just published a special issue um, uh, with, I think, a 13 papers, research papers from the Conserve Project in a journal called Environmental Research. Mm. So. Excellent. That's fascinating to learn about the Conserve Project. I encourage people to check that out. I will myself, having just learned about it today from you. So that, that sounds like a really great um, uh, endeavor. So um, you mentioned earlier, Manan, uh, that FDA is collecting data. How have you seen your data be used? Are you, do you have um, points of contact in which you're translating the outcome of research to them or others to help move forward with good regulation or guidance? So I think um, our role in this process, um, you know, well, first I should say the FDA, um, they've been very good for the federal collaborators in this process because mm -hmm. they're responsible for implementing FSMA, essentially. Um, and to their credit, I mean, I think they recognize that there were many different things that were lacking in their ability to sort of um, 
sort of in the rulemaking process. They basically need a lot of environmental data. Mm -hmm. So they reached out to not only us and the Agricultural Research Service, but also other academic institutions as well to try and mm -hmm. uh, attain and design studies to, to get those data. Um, I will say that, you know, the FDA interest in our project, you know, they do have an interest in our analysis, mm -hmm. but they have people on their staff that will do their own analysis with our data, okay. and we're um, perfectly fine with that. We're a research agency. Uh, we're here to do research to help solve agricultural problems, which I think is a slightly, uh, which is, you know, definitely a different, different mission than the FDA, mm -hmm. who is tasked with regulating, you know, lar a large portion of the food supply. So we sort of let them handle the regulatory side of it, and we handle the research and the impact side of it. Got it. That makes sense. I, I know we're kind of running out of time, but I had two more questions. And one is sort of more of along the lines of big picture, um, you know, maybe outside of your research. You're a food safety professional. You've been around for about 20 years, right? I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> you had hair back then. Uh, and so what... What do you think about the state of things in general, or what are your just general comments, perspective on where we're headed in terms of food safety globally? You know, that's a really great question. Um, that's that's a tremendous question, Peter. Um, you know, I I am just so fascinated and maybe worried about how we balance. Um, the idea of keeping people safe and providing them food that is not contaminated. Mm -hmm. And also with the idea that we need to be sustainable mm -hmm. in our approach because we know that we have more and more people and we have more and more issues with our climate. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I see some inner, inner relationship here, but I really think like this is what the struggle that we'll have going forward. And it's not all the struggle, but balancing sustainability and safety, I think, is going to be interesting mm. because um, we're going to be using water is going to become a premium, yes. and the water that goes into agriculture may be less available, and it also may be of a lesser quality. Right. So, how do we mitigate that? What's do is there a, is there a way we can improve the, the quality of water from lesser quality right now that is unusable for agriculture mm -hmm. to make it more useful in agriculture um, from a whole variety of standpoints, including in, in removing or reducing the pathogen load in those waters. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that you're seeing is that a lot of big data science is going to have to come together yeah. because, um, you know, we've talked a little bit here about soil amendments and we've talked about water, but we're treating them very separately, at least in a research approach. Mm -hmm. And this needs to come together in a systems, you know, like yeah. it's been kind of a buzzword for a couple of years, yeah. but now I'm really beginning to wonder, like, for example, if you have contaminated water that has a pathogen in it, mm -hmm. the water lands on soil that has some extra nutrients in it from a soil, biological soil amendment like manure, like a treated poultry pellet. Mm -hmm. Can that pathogen take up residence in that soil and then eventually transfer to a leafy green crop, for example, or some other edible thing that, again, does not receive a kill step before it's consumed? I think we have to start thinking like this. Um, and that's just one example. Mm -hmm. um, and you are obviously much, much more of an expert in processing food and uh, production of food than I am. But I think this isn't necessarily unique to pre-harvest food safety. I think this is mm -hmm. sort of a systems approach that's all over food safety. 
Well, it's just that my brain couldn't go that far over to the <laughs> pre-harvest, <laughs> so I went with so. I And I, I wish we had more time, and hopefully maybe you could come back. But you've been really helpful to students, switching gears here. You've helped students and early career professionals get established in food safety and in, in that profession. Um, just in the little bit of time we have left, what is your advice to students, young professionals? Uh, just give them some wisdom. Well, one, pay it forward because um, I think you and I work for uh, an advisor, Dr. Larry Bouchard, mm -hmm. who put a premium on developing our careers. Yeah. And um, he always gave us opportunities to attend meetings, to interact with professionals, mm -hmm. um, to write papers, to share our research. Um, so remember that you, there's good things in paying it forward. And I would say too, getting involved in professional organizations really can help you with a whole bunch of skills, not just technical, scientific skills, but also the skills that you need to establish a network, uh, to meet people, to meet people who actually do a different type of science than you do, but still may be in food safety or food science mm -hmm. as well. It's expanding your horizons. Um, mm -hmm. And three, I would say stay technical for as long as you can. Hmm. Learn as much as you can when you're there to learn. Yeah. Because when you get to a job, whether it be in industry, whether it be in academia, whether it be in government, your time to do science yes. and to actually learn is is constrained by the other obligations of the role that you that you may step into. So when you can learn, please take advantage of it. It's one of the things that I wish I had done more of when I was in graduate school. Yeah. And appreciate it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate it. Because appreciate that bench work while you're doing it. Yeah. You may never see it again after mm -hmm. you get out. I know. It doesn't seem like it at the time, yeah. but it really is one of your only times to sit around and read journals and to do work mm -hmm. on a in a laboratory or in a research environment yeah. without maybe as many constraints as you will have later on in life. Excellent. 100% true. How do people get in touch with you or find out more about what you're working on? Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Um, so if you want to learn more about us, we are the Agricultural Research Service, and you can come to www.ars.usda.gov. If you go to that website, you can type in my name, Manan Sharma, and that'll take you to our lab, which is the Environmental Microbial Food Safety Lab. You can also learn more about our research project, uh, our, our water research project, at conservewaterforfood.org. Um, and if you drop me a line by email, I'll make sure uh, I respond. Just say you heard it on this podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma. Thank you. It's right. been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.